family. You, you join a group. You join a people. It's really difficult to go to a people. Correct? But we use this language because, and we'll get into the history of this a little later on when we, uh, in our next series about how we even came to the point of talking about church like it's a building. Um, but it's a fairly new development in church history, the idea that you would go to an ecclesia, which is the Greek word, which is like a called out people. Most of the roots of the word of church revolve around this image of there are things that need to be done. There's work and a mission that needs to be had. And so you would call out people from a community and you say, will you guys take care of this and represent for the rest of the people? Will you represent for the rest of the folks you can't go? Would you, you are being called out and welcomed out. Ecclesia was a word that existed before Jesus uh, stepped down onto this earth. And this word gets appropriated by the early Christian movement to say, this is what God has been doing all along. It starts, uh, if you're familiar with your Bibles at all in Genesis 28, there is this mission that has been given to these first people. God calls out a tribe and he says, I'm going to bless you in order to be a blessing. Blessing is, is something that never just is uh, kind of for a people to indulge or a person to indulge. Someone's always blessed in order to go and to bless. And so this is the beginning of the movement of God putting things back together. And he chooses to use a, a people to do this. And so there's all of this language that, uh, if you, again, if you've been a part of our church, you, you're familiar with, I hope, where we are joining God in what he is doing. And we're told he is renewing all things. We're told Jesus right now is making all things new. Peter and Paul talk about how we can be our partners with God in the restoring of the world. Right in the middle of the prayer that Jesus gives his disciples. How should we pray? How should we think about the world? And, and he, he uh, right in the center of that, he says, pray on earth as it is in heaven. And so we've appropriated that, right? In Providence, on the east side, on the north end, and the south side as it is in heaven. That when the, the commission is given to these early disciples to go and make followers of Jesus, this is all wrapped up in this big story of announcing the good news that Jesus is king and that Jesus is putting it all back together and that you are then saved by grace through faith. Yeah, it's a pretty big story. We believe some weird stuff about the world. If you're new with us, welcome to our weird little story. There are some things that we hope that you would experience as a part of Sanctuary Church. We've, we've had these words kicking around for a long time. And we, we just thought, let's, let's build a series and kind of like formalize that a little bit. Like when people are a part of our community, we are hoping that they feel loved. That like as a part of our community, you, you sense God's love for you. You are formed by God. You're equipped and empowered by God and you are sent out into the world. If we could boil everything down, that we, we, we believe you'll experience as, with, with God's help, because we can't do all that. <laughs> We're trying to, to, to join God in that work as leaders, that that's, that's what every person who's a part of this community will feel. And see, this hasn't just come out of nowhere. This has, one, been like a lived experience. We've realized this is a part of our community. These are our values. But then when you look back and you go, all right, how do we be the church? which I realize is not a great way to say that. 
How do we be the church? How do we become the church? How are we the people of God? Well, we go back and uh, one thing I love to do and Christians love to do, we go back and we look at the scriptures. How did it start? We do this with a lot of things, right? We go back and look at the beginning, at the Genesis, sensing that there's probably something there that we can continue to learn. And so those first followers of Jesus who started outposts of love and justice and grace, outposts of heaven, Paul calls them in Philippians, colonies of, of, of heaven. What, what do they look like? And, and then going back a little further, as they were apprentices of Jesus, how did Jesus form them and shape them in such a way that they were able to go do this? And so when you go back and you look, you can find all over the place these first church planters, these first disciples, these first followers of the way, these first people who inspired the Mandelas and Dr. Kings and Mother Teresa's and William Wilberforce's and Dorothy Day's. We could go down the list of of men and women throughout history and churches throughout history who've worked to be faithful to to the way of Jesus. How did it all start? Well, you realize that they experienced in this little, like you could call it maybe a little house church they had with Jesus. They experienced love and they were formed by Jesus and they were equipped and empowered and sent by Jesus. We see all of these things exist in the lives of these disciples as they're being shaped by Jesus. And so we wanted to go back and kind of uh, look at, all right, how did these disciples begin to trust that they were loved? And trust that Jesus's formation, that his way was the best. And and trust that he was going to give them what they needed for the journey in terms of being equipped and empowered. And trust that Jesus really was giving them the keys to the kingdom and said, go do this. I'm out. Which is still hard for me to believe sometimes. So week one. To be the church is to be a people who who recognize and trust that they are loved. And, and so there's this, there's this passage that we've all read, John 15, 21. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. I always, I preach that, ser- that sermon on that many, many times. And I always go to that as I have loved you. Or sorry, I always go to uh, love each other. And it just dawned on me, like he's, he's indicating right here, as clear as day that Jesus has loved his disciples which might sound really obvious, but how did he love them? How did Jesus love his disciples? If you actually do a little word search and look for the amount of times Jesus like pulls them aside and says, I love you, Peter. Love you, Andrew. I have the pleasure of being a name of a disciple as well. Love you, buddy. We don't, we don't get any passages like that. None. And so I began to think, okay, how, how is it that He says, go love each other as I have loved you. How did Jesus love them? Now, as you can imagine, again, if you're familiar with the scriptures, there's about a thousand places I could go. Here's where I want to go. My favorite character, my buddy Peter. Anybody a fan of Peter? You know what I mean when I say a fan of Peter? Like anyone like, um, anyone like quick to jump Anyone really, really kind of zealous? Anyone been told that they are passionate? And what started as like a a, a term of endearment turns into like a, 
they're kind of just like, oh yeah. It's like, it's like code for they just don't, they don't really do anything, but they're really excited about things. Anybody want to raise their hand for that? That was age 25 to 29 for me. Like, I think when you're saying I'm really passionate, what you're saying is, is I don't follow through on anything. You're just really excited. No, it said that Peter didn't follow through, but Peter is this character that I love. I feel like his personality, um, he, and I, he and I just have the same personality. There's something about uh, the way in which he's like the first to jump out of the boat when he sees Jesus, where he's the, he's the character, if you're new to the Bible, who goes and walks on the water. And he fails and he falls apart, but he like, he goes for it and he tries. A friend of mine wrote this poem uh, and he's very sympathetic to Peter because you imagine he gets back in the boat and all the disciples are like, I can't believe you didn't trust Jesus with that. Right? And then Jesus just like, I feel, he has this, in his poem, Jesus walks over to the side of the boat as if he's still in the water, peers over the boat and is like, uh, let, let's note your dry feet. At least this guy got out of the boat. You know, like, like Peter is the one who is, who, who we'll get to it in a minute. He's like, I will never betray you. Nothing bad will ever happen. Jesus is telling him, hey guys, I'm going to go die on the cross. You think everybody be like, okay, well, we've trusted Jesus so far. We've seen him do some incredible things. This guy's for real. Let's at least hear what he has to say. That's a bummer. It's really, really sad. I'm not sure I want to accept that. And Peter's like, no. Peter's the one who IDs Jesus as the son of God, mind you. He's the one who kind of has a vision to see what Jesus is all about. And he's like, nah, nah, nah. You've been good so far, Jesus, and I'm willing to follow you to the ends of the earth, right? I dropped my nets and I walked on the water thing. I get all that, but no. No, you're not going to die. Sorry. He projects his own pain avoidance constantly into situations. He's eager. He's ready to jump. He's ready to go. But everything's got to be good. Everybody good? Everybody good? Everybody good? He's cutting off ears like when... <laughs> when the soldiers come at him, he's like, no, 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 this is not happening. Peter, I love this guy. What happens with Peter, though, is it begins to lead his, I, I don't know how I'd best describe it outside of random personality tests that only half of you have heard about, is, uh, <laughs> is it, there's something in him that seems to lead him from um, a, a real zealous passion to just like, I need everything to work out. It's going to work out. This hopeful cheerleader to them, like being confronted with his own, well, lack of integrity and follow through. He, hit, he hits a, he hits a wall. Again, if you're brand new to the scriptures, this guy Peter is one of these 12 followers of Jesus. And he's the one who we're going to hear words like, I'm going to build my church on you, buddy. Matthew 26, 75, or 6 to start at 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. This is uh, context real quick. Jesus uh, has died on the cross. He's, uh, or he's, he's going to his death. He's in Jerusalem. Now the religious elite have essentially won. They've rallied the crowd. 
And Rome, who at the, it seems Pontius Pilate could really care less about Jesus and whether he lives or dies, has gone along with it. If you're a follower of this guy who's about to get thrown up on a cross, you are not uh, a popular kid. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. Hey, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. All right, he's trying to save his skin. He loves this guy. He loves Jesus. He says, Jesus, no, 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 I will never, never betray. You know what? Let's go back. Matthew 16, before we get to this story. From that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders. The chief priests and the teacher of the law um, uh, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Try that line out with one of your friends one time and they say something you don't like. <laughs> I was wanting to get a shirt that just said that. <laughs> just to be like, a situation's not going very well. And you're like... Back off. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter's sitting in a courtyard. This will never happen. I will never betray you. I will never go back. So then he went out to the gateway. There was another servant, saw him and said to the people there, hey, this uh, fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again and with an emphasis, with an, with an oath, which is like an emphasis, right? He says, I swear, I swear, I don't know the man. Now this is a point blank lie. After a while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are the one your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them. I don't know the man. Peter gets really, really, really emotional when confronted with, um, yeah, with confronted with this information, with confronted with being outed, with con being confronted with the truth. This is what we see people do this all the time, right? All of a sudden, they're backed into a corner and they double down. Immediately, a rooster crowed, and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. I wish I had more time this morning to give you a profile of Peter and Jesus's like story. But understand that th th this line right here, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Makes so much sense. Peter, all of a sudden, is recognizing the disconnect between his verbal love and appreciation and always the guy out front and the first out of the boat, and I'll follow you, and I got you, and I'm going where you're going, and that'll never happen as long as I'm here. And then all of a sudden, he's confronted with a, 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 a moment where he may have to lay down his life, where he may have to sacrifice and the lights now come on and he goes, oh my gosh, 
there is a gap between where I want to be and where I say I am and what's really in my heart. He says he loves and that's not showing up in his life. That's not showing up in the flesh. It's an interesting moment here for Jesus or for Peter where he just realizes, I like to think the lights just go on. He wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. I've told a story years ago, and um, it's a little weird and vulnerable, and all my pastor friends say I shouldn't tell stories like this, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, yeah, a, a moment where all of a sudden, have you ever had a moment where the lights come on, and you kind of see yourself for how you are? All of a sudden, you're like, oh, oh. I, uh, I do have a problem here. The short version is just this moment of realizing that um, I couldn't have everything that I wanted. And as I was dating this person and kind of flirting with this person and wanting this to kind of work and saying I wanted it to work but not really paying attention at all to what was happening over here, and not thinking that it was affecting anybody else. And then all of a sudden, and I say all of a sudden, but all of my friends who've journeyed with me through this point out, it was like six months of all of a sudden. But all of a sudden I found myself sitting in the front pew of the church that we were planted out of, sanctuary planted out of, with all my friends essentially having an intervention alongside one of the elders of the church saying, we can't follow Andrew. We can't do this if this is going to keep going on. We love you, but this has to stop. And it was one of those moments where if I had laid everything out in like technicalities, like I hadn't done anything wrong. <laughs> like in my weird warped economy of technicalities. And it was like all of a sudden, you ever had that moment where you go, I say I love this, and I say I want this, and I say I care like this, but there is such a gap. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if any of you have failed, but this was one of probably three failures in my life where I thought, oh my gosh, everything that I've really wanted to do and be about is about to come crashing down. Peter weeps bitterly. I remember just all of a sudden crying. And it wasn't crying because I had been found out. I had told some of my friends who were in that room what was happening and I had been praying with them and talking with them about this like confusion I was feeling. Yeah. It was like a bitter, weeping, repentant, Oh my gosh, Lord. Like I I don't want to I don't want I don't want to be like this. I don't want this to be. I, I'm, I it was like a it was like a I want to say a shame, but it was deeper than that. I just realized I had I had missed the mark. That's one of the definitions by the way of sin. It's just missing the mark. Peter wept bitterly. What I, I mean I don't I don't want to imagine too many things into the scripture, but what else did he, did he feel? 
What else did he feel? How beat up is this guy? Like during the, like the next night or the next day, when he saw Jesus then crucified and buried, like what kind of despair and shame must he have felt? This was the person he had given his whole life. He left his trade. He left his family. He left everything behind and he had betrayed him. I wrote a little prayer, like what I was trying to put myself into Peter's place. I imagine him saying, my Lord is gone and my hope is gone. That this life of love that you've given me, all of these blessings of being with me for three years, and I've just denied you and messed it all up. God, have mercy on me, if that's even possible. I don't know if we can realize like the depth of his humiliation. But then there's this verse, there's this line here. Immediately after the rooster crowed, Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. And he, they tell us what the word was, was that Jesus called it. <laughs> Jesus says, someone's going to betray me. Peter's like, never me. And I got to imagine Jesus being like, mm, don't say that. But I want to zero in just for a moment and allow me a little pastoral flexibility to lean into this word remembered. Then Peter remembered the word that he had spoken. I like to think that he remembered a couple other things. I like to think that he didn't just remember, shoot, Jesus was right. Like that moment where I'm sitting in the pew surrounded by my friends going like, oh my gosh, you guys said it could get to this. But there were other things in that moment that came to light. There are other things that I remembered. There's this passage um, earlier on in the gospel talking about dealing with sin in the church. How, what do we do when we mess with each other? What do we do when we let each other down? Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times. This is Peter's question. Peter's asking and curious about forgiveness and curious about sin. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. I wondered if he remembered these words too. I wonder if there was a moment where he remembered that he was forgiven. So here's our central passage today. That was all just a big preface. <laughs> John 21. It won't be too long. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has risen from the grave, and there are rumors that he's up and about. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, a bunch of his friends are all out. Two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So he's reconnected with his friends. Probably his friends don't know what actually happened. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was him. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, that's John, by the way, this is how he refers to himself in his own letter. <laughs> 
It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, as soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped out into the water. I love, he's jumping into the water again. He's the first guy out there. But this is on the other side of what? Weeping bitterly in repentance and recognizing this disconnect. And he remembered. I don't know what else he remembered. Did he remember that story of forgiveness? Did he remember the times that Jesus came alongside him and allowed him to fail? He goes, are you serious? And he jumped into the water. He jumped like this, apparently, like a Pokemon character. (laughs) He leaps into the water and goes after him. For those of you new to the scripture and wondering about the not, not recognizing him thing, there's this whole resurrection body thing. We'll talk about it Easter. Hang on. They don't quite recognize what's going on. He's in some sort of new f- form, body, represented differently. But he, he rec- there's something about what just happened that causes him to go out and he recognizes him. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. I just like this, this whole scene to me is like frantic, excitable, like Peter, like monkey, like with the little symbols. He's just like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll get the fish. He's. He's overcome with something. He's overcome with something. When they were finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? They're sitting down, they've eaten, and now there's a moment. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yeah. Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Very Jewish way of saying, like, I'm, I'm going to entrust something to you. Take care of these brothers and sisters. Take care of the next generation of Jesus followers. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. I mean, Jesus is kind of being a little manipulative, it looks like, on the surface, Right? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you that when you were younger and dressed yourself and went where you wanted, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Peter's going to get a chance again to lay down his life is what he's saying. And then he said, follow me. First, write the words, follow me down if you're taking notes. Follow me. This is the key to this passage because what Jesus is doing here is reinstating a failure. He is reinstating. In in Matthew 4, early on in the Jesus story, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, first time he sees Peter and his brother Andrew, they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he says, come, follow me. Jesus said, I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and follow him. Why Why does Jesus remind Peter of this? 
Why does Jesus ask him three times? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus did. In fact, later Peter realized what Jesus had done in that painful conversation. See, he, he, Jesus didn't doubt Peter's love. Jesus gives Peter a chance for a do-over. This is significant. He like rewinds the tape. Hey, remember that first time? Let's try this again. Let's try this whole like three times denying me thing. Hey, 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 Peter, you love me? Yeah, 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 I do. Okay, cool. Take that one out. Number two. Hey, remember when that servant girl came up to you again? And you asked, they asked you about, about me? And you denied me? Do you love me? Yeah, I do. Okay, good. We're gone. Number three. When you straight up pledged an oath and swore down curses and said, I do not know you. Let's try one third time. Okay. And then he gives him the words, follow me. The first words that he spoke to Peter in the scriptures. Let's do this. Let's start again. Let's start again. This is what love does. This is what love does. Love restores. It restores again and again and again. Jesus loved them. He says, love each other like I loved you. He showed them a patient, restorative love. So then when he says, go feed my sheep, go be the church. He's looking around that fire at one in particular overzealous failure. We have to remember that the person that earlier Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on this guy, on this rock, on this Peter. is an overzealous law, like failure. Jesus chooses and uses failures. He heals and restores our failures. Look, shame can haunt us and inhibit us. And shame, this stuff gets weird when it comes to faith and spirituality. And no matter how many times I feel like I don't need to talk about this stuff anymore, I meet a new crop of people who have just been beaten down by, by parents, by friends, by systems, and so sadly often by a church, by religion. Shame that inhibits us. So when we fail at being the church, when we go, wow, this community really wants to love and restore and do all these great things, I'm not sure they want me on their team. You're exactly who we want on the team. We must remember that Jesus said to Peter before his failure, he says this, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when you've repented, strengthen your brothers. Peter was going to mess it up miserably and Jesus's prayer was stronger than Peter's sin. Jesus knew, he calls it out, he prays for him and it's stronger than your sin too. Jesus, the great restorer of failures. Peter is love. Jesus is lovingly rebuilding and restoring Peter to service. A restorative, powerful love is the foundation of any church. 
When we say stop going to church and start being it, well, step one would be let us be love for one another. Step one is what this very man Peter writes then to an early church. You want to hear what he writes? This guy, 1 Peter 4, 8, he writes, above all, above all, above everything else, love each other deeply because love covers over a what? Multitude of sins. This isn't vapid, disconnected preacher-like talk. This guy has been through it. He has failed. When he says it covers a multitude of sins, we read that with like sort of this, I don't know, this reverence of the language. Like Paul is like, no, no, literally multitude of sins. Let me pull out my ledger. Let me pull down the sheet. I failed. Here, 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 here. Here's my multitude. And love covers it. He covers it. He knows that it covers it. He knows it restores. And he knows it puts you back on a path to be the sort of people who can communicate and share this sort of love with the world. This is why Christians who get self-righteous and arrogant like, are, are, are just so confusing. It's confusing, right, when that creeps up because we know that we're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We know that we're broken people who have been saved by grace. How could we ever not love? How could we ever not lay down our life? How could we ever not? And so Jesus, for all the different ways that he loves, we're told, right, that love is patient. And Jesus has this patient, restorative love for Peter. Tribes, people, Movements always marked out by things like language and geography and food. The church is marked out by love. Our tribe is marked by love. Above all, want to be the church. This is a place where I pray that we are experiencing that love. We are sharing that love. And that even when we are failing at loving, we are receiving and can receive the restorative love of God. Love builds a church. I want it to be said about sanctuary that love built this. Love built this. And it is. It is. I'm walking with a buddy who has a, a pretty stark strong, awful multitude of sins. And I will tell you that the one consistent thing through every failure and misstep and every screw up has been over and over and over as I can't believe God hasn't given up on me yet. I just can't believe God hasn't given up on me yet. He has experienced the love and generosity of so many in this community. And that has been a vehicle and a channel. A vehicle and a channel of God's love for him. Above all. Above all. The last point as we close, I want to invite the ushers up for communion. Peter's failure did not define him. Peter's failure does, did not define him. 
There are horrible, humbling stumbles along the path of following Jesus who pays them all on the cross. And Jesus specializes in transforming failures into rocks of strength for his church. This is what Jesus does. What I loved about preparing this talk was that I knew that for folks that are like have some really live issues in their life right now and some like failures that they're going through, you know, I'm like, all right, God, you're gonna, you're just gonna do something awesome in this moment. I really believe these last 10 minutes we have together. So we come to the table, God's just gonna heal and restore if he isn't already at work doing it. But I love this too, because for those that, that are coming in and, and that's really not a present reality, they're on top of the mountain or they're just unaware. What I love about this is this story brings to light that for Peter, yeah, there was ultimately this kind of epic moment of falling short. But there was a disconnect for a long, long time between his stated verbal love of God and neighbor and what was really in his heart. And so for some of us, I pray that you are just going to experience the encouraging, powerful, restorative love of God. And for others, you may feel a bit of the conviction of God's love because God's love heals and God's love restores And God's love challenges. God's love shapes. So if we're going to be a church, if we're going to be a people, if church is not going to be relegated to something that we go to on Sunday and are mildly entertained by Andrew's hand motions, but we're going to be a people who are deployed for the love and restoration of the world. And this has got to be a, a place where we are trusting God's deep and redemptive and restorative and powerful and reckless love for us. The way that it heals and the way that it shows us where our failures are maybe buried below the surface, underneath self-righteousness, underneath comfort, or underneath pain avoidance. So Lord, as we come to the table, as we take the bread, a reminder of your body broken, and we dip it in the cup, a reminder of your blood poured out for us on the cross, where love, and it's like most incredible form was crystallized for us. Like we get this amazing image of that is love. The God of the universe, the love and the logic behind everything made flesh and blood and laying down its life saying, this is what I like and that I am for you and that I love you. So turn away and come to me. I have come after the failure. I have come after the person with the, the list, with the multitude of sins. I, Lord, I pray as we take this bread and dip in this cup as, as a remembrance of what you've done. God, would we experience your love? Would we know in our minds and in our hearts that which is true? 
for my brothers and sisters struggling with failure today. Know. Know that we have a God who chooses and uses people just like you. Who chooses and uses the hypocrite. How does Jesus love his disciples to prepare them to be the church? He loves them with a patient, restorative love. God, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you're here this morning and you want to say yes to Jesus, to do is really just to say yes, to believe that he is Lord, to believe in the cross and the resurrection, to say yes, I believe that Jesus is king, that I am loved right where I'm at, and I want to turn and follow him. I will trust that I'm loved exactly where I am. I want to encourage you in this moment just to say yes to say yes. And maybe this moment of coming to the table, taking the bread and dipping in the cup, this might be a moment, this might be your confirmation, you're coming forward and raising your hand. This is the moment of saying, yes, Jesus. Yes, I want to follow you. Yes, I want to trust your love. If you're one of those people, go go and, and tell someone. We have like a Bible for you and a card for you in the prayer corners. Go and say, I said yes to Jesus today. And I'll ask someone to just give you this gift and to pray for you. I pray, Lord, that in these next these last few minutes we have together, that you would heal and restore, that this prayer corner would be full, that the altar would be full of folks just crying out to you, thanking you for your love trusting you and your love, laying down those failures, letting them go so that they can pick up the victory that we have with you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Come forward. You can come and, and just pray in the front. You can sit in the pew. Come and take communion. Come and be prayed for. Come up the center aisle. If you're just coming to take communion, you can circle back around. And we're just going to take a few minutes together to reflect, to pray, to seek after God before we end our time. Okay? We good? Are we good? I don't, you may not believe it, but you are loved by the God of the universe. That's good news, right? Let's access our full emotional range this morning. Is that good? Amen, amen, and amen. Come, let's take and eat.